Words fill a page. Pages fill a chapter. Chapters fill a book. Everyone has a story. Some have a story they are proud of telling. Others will have stories they would rather not tell. Every decision, big or small, writes the story of your life. We all have portions of our story that are still unwritten, but one day you'll be able to tell a story from this season of your life and see the hand of the author as you turn the pages. Let God write your story and you'll live one worth telling. My story, living the story you want to tell. So today's the last Sunday in this series where we've been talking about our story under the bigger picture of God's story. I hope you've enjoyed this. It's been great to dig into some characters in Scripture and really figure out what God was doing in their lives and draw some parallels. And the stories for many of you in our congregation have been really, really incredible. So to wrap up, we're going to look at Philip in Acts chapter 8 today. Um, Sometimes our stories are changed by circumstances that are outside of our control, and we end up going directions in our life stories that we otherwise would not have chosen, would not have known that we would be going on. Maybe company downsizing leaves the only option for you to find a job or to take a job 500 miles away from home where you know nobody, there are no connections, and there's a a forced transition in your life. Or maybe a young family is getting started and everything seems to be going their way and having kids and marriage is going well and jobs are going well and illness or death strikes and then there's a loss in the family and then there's a forced transition. Or a sports injury in college might not only stop an athletic career but might result in a chronic ongoing pain that maybe a man or woman has to deal with for the rest of their lives. The person in the story we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 8 had his story altered by violence, by some persecution that was going on in the early church. And it's going to teach us a lot about how we should respond to things that are going on in our lives, how we should respond when those incidents come in our lives and we end up talking to people we might not have thought we would talk about, being around people, working with people, engaged with people in an area that we never thought we would have been serving. Just a little bit to remind you, the book of Acts in the New Testament is the second part of a two-part volume by a doctor named Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, the story of Jesus' life, and then the story of this new church that was formed when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost after Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. In fact, I think it's important to start at Acts chapter 1 just to get some background for the life of Philip, who we're going to look at today. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, as we get started this morning. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, that is Jesus, and this is after his resurrection, before his ascension, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift I promise. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, is it time for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set the dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying these things, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. 
always important to know that Philip's story in this section of in Acts chapter 8, which we'll look at, your story, my story, every story that we've heard during this series is part of a bigger story. Our story is a subplot of God's story. God who created the world, God who loved us enough to, to give us life and who watched his creation, this beautiful, perfect creation, rebel against him, and then the fall, and then the Old Testament is a story of God using the people of Israel and having a community there where he was trying to restore not just people, but restore this whole world, this whole system that's broken because of sin. Jesus came as our Redeemer and the one who sacrificed for our sin and was the payment to restore all that's been broken. And then in the New Testament, which we're picking up in this section, God sends His Holy Spirit upon the church. And that's the era that we're in right now. We're in the era of God's story where the Holy Spirit is flooding the church and using us to be witnesses in all of the world for the story of God. The cool thing is we actually know how it's going to end, and we know that at the end of this era, then God comes and, and He wins, and Jesus Christ is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and everyone's going to get it, and everyone's going to know it. And so we know that that's the story where we're going. That's why this is so exciting. Verse 8 in chapter 1 has two important concepts or principles that I want to remind you of before we talk about Philip. The first one is that God would send the Holy Spirit upon his followers. The Holy Spirit was going to be poured out, was poured out on this group of people who were meeting with Jesus and starting the New Testament church. Later in the New Testament, we understand the Holy Spirit gives us our identity as the people of God. He's the, the guarantee of our inheritance, Some Paul writes in, in Romans. And the next principle flows from that. You will be my witnesses everywhere. The Holy Spirit comes, and the result of the Holy Spirit's influence in your lives and what the Holy Spirit is doing is you will be witnesses. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit's going to come, and there's a little section of you that we're going to give some training on how to do evangelism, and you're going to go do it. It doesn't say that. It says the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you will be witnesses. The cool thing about that is everywhere that's read is like a new, is a new start. So we read that right here in Baldwin, and so we could say, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, and God will be witnesses in West County, Baldwin, Manchester, throughout the greater St. Louis area, throughout the United States to the end of the world. There are churches in Africa that, that can read this and talk about their region and their concentric circles that God's doing this. The Holy Spirit is still doing this very thing. This has not stopped yet. So Jesus ascends <clears throat> into heaven. Uh, Peter delivers this incredible speech uh, linking the power of the Holy Spirit, even with the Old Testament people of God, and what God wants to do in the New Testament times. The church in Jerusalem was growing. People were coming to faith. There were a lot of miracles and proclamation of, of the hope that Jesus Christ was bringing and this new kingdom reality that they're experiencing now with the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> At the same time, opposition was growing. There were a lot of people that were against what was happening. The religious leaders, some of the political leaders were very afraid of what was going on. And on one occasion in Acts chapter 6, all this is important to get to Philip, in Acts chapter 6, this early church realized that things were so busy and there was so much happening that there was a group of widows that were not being 
cared for like they should, and they were getting overlooked in some of the distribution of food. So the leaders in the early church said, well, we need to devote ourselves to teaching and to really making sure this message of Jesus Christ, uh, the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to present is being spread. So we're going to select some really, really awesome men, godly men, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, who had great decision-making ability, and they were going to take over the distribution of food to these widows and make sure no one was overlooked. Philip was one of those seven who, and, and this, is, this is not Philip, the, one of the twelve. There's a Philip who's one of the apostles. This is a different Philip who was one of the seven who was listed among these people who were going to share in this care for the widows. The most famous one, uh, Stephen, who was one of these seven who was caring for the widows, who encountered great opposition and challenged those who were opposing him, gives an incredible speech about the power of God and what God's doing, and in such a loving way, just commits himself to God. And it's important because Philip saw this, and all the rest of the people in Jerusalem saw this, that Stephen just kind of surrendered himself to the Lord, and the opponents picked up rocks, and they threw them at him, and they beat him with rocks until he lost his life there. And in chapter 8, Saul is leading, who would become Paul, leading the opposition against the church. Violence is intensifying. It was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem at this time. Very dangerous. Now let's jump into Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria And he told the people there about the Messiah. So the violence was very intense, and there were some people who just had to scatter. They just left town. It's not the way you want to start a new venture. It's not probably something you think, this is really the good way to get this thing going. Murder, violence, persecution, fear, all of these things that were happening. But the Holy Spirit was at work in this church. The message of God's kingdom was of greater reality than life. So what Stephen paid his ultimate, the ultimate price of his life for was very much worth it because this new group of believers, followers of Jesus Christ, were like, this is the kingdom message. God's doing something great. How could we not share this with other people? They scattered the believers. Philip landed in Samaria, probably a town called Sebast. Uh, at least scholars believe that's probably where he landed. And he started telling people about Jesus. Now, I love what happened here. Philip and the other followers of Jesus didn't see witnessing or evangelism as something extra to do in your faith. It's like wherever they landed, that's just what they did because that's who they are. That's an important lesson from Philip's life. Unplanned transition, he finds himself in Samaria. What does he do? Well, I need to kind of figure out what the what the situation here is before I really start. No. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's been redeemed by the power of Christ. He's part of this community of faith that has been inaugurated through Christ. And and one of his friends just paid the ultimate price for this. And so wherever he goes, he's sharing about Jesus Christ. There's nothing about us that's not missional. Everything about being the church is having a message that other people need to hear. It's too easy for missions and evangelism to be shuffled off over there to another department, to another area. You go to uh, even a good Bible-believing evangelical seminary, 
today. And you can study pastoral ministry, uh, counseling, or missions. You get that? Pastoral ministry over here, missions over there. Now, you could take classes in both, but you're going to emphasize one or the other. And I understand what we're trying to do, but that's something that should never be bifurcated, should never be torn apart. Discipleship and ministry and evangelism and mission is one and the same. Those are so intricately involved with one another that there's no separation of those. The New Testament doesn't talk about discipleship happening over there and missions and outreach happening over there. The New Testament doesn't talk about the average ordinary Christian and then those who really are good at sharing their faith. There's, there's nothing like that. What the New Testament presents is a reality of God doing a work among this world and putting His people together so that our existence is a testament and a testimony to what God is doing. When I was on sabbatical a few months ago, I studied a lot, uh, a man named Leslie Newbegin when I was at Trinity Seminary and in Cambridge. Leslie Newbegin is a, he's a missionary in India for many years from Britain. He died in 1998. He left a treasure trove of teaching about the church and about the mission of the church in such a refreshing way. Um, and he also talked about how to be a witness in a pluralistic society. And in reading much of what he wrote, I, I just came to this conviction, and it fit very well here. One of his uh, writings, he said, the problem is that we view salvation in the church as being too individualistic and spiritualistic, misunderstood as a spiritualized one-to-one -one relationship of the human soul with God. It's all about you knowing Jesus, about me knowing Jesus, and this personalized, individualistic kind of approach. He said, however, in Scripture, salvation is social. Salvation is cosmic. It's about knitting together the human race again in reconciliation with God, with each other, and with non-human creation. God is doing this incredible work of redeeming the world and, and doing this. And so often we see evangelism as me trying to convince you that you need Jesus. Now, is that true? Of course. But the context, when we lose the context, it becomes very individualistic and we lose the big picture of what God is doing in the world. How different our evangelism would be how different our motivation to be a witness would be if we don't take it as how guilty am I going to be if I don't share my faith this week? It becomes a guilt trip. Instead of there's this incredible creator God who is working this wonderful story and this narrative redemption throughout history. And in that, he's building a community of people. And I've been privileged to be drawn into that community of people. And our existence as a community of people says to the world that there's a savior, there's a plan, there's a place to belong. All of a sudden, it's not about guilt. It's about why wouldn't we do this? Why wouldn't we share with people wherever we are? The truth driven by the power of the Spirit created in this early church this push to be witnesses wherever they were. A few weeks ago, we heard right here on this platform from one of our missionaries, and she shared at one of our mission community lunches again. If you were here, you know Lynn. Um, Lynn's country that she is, has been serving in Africa is overtaken by terrorists, and she shared with us that right now there's hardly any area in the country where she serves that's not run by terrorists and is not in danger. The United States State Department has said United States citizens should not travel there. And yet she said there's a church there that she wants to serve, and there are people there she wants to serve. And her plans are, unless something changes, to go back 
to serve. Why? Because there's this kingdom reality that makes the reality of this earth secondary to what's truly true, and that's what God is doing. So, as we know, Philip, again, not the apostle uh, Philip, but this evangelist Philip in Acts chapter 8, let's jump into verse 6. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was great joy. Now, my hunch is that the effectiveness of the evangelism efforts in Samaria here with Philip and the others who were with him were not due to some cutting-edge technique, but to the conviction and the power of God through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit that was displayed through these people. Now, I should pause there because some of you, well, where are we at with these miracle things? What do we, how do we hold those? Um, Miracles characterize much of Jesus' ministry and the early church in ways that are incredible. And I think it's fair to say that in the time of Jesus' ministry on earth and even in the early church, that there was an intensification, intensified um, battle in the spiritual realm. And I think it's fair to think that Some of what happened there may or may not be normative in all of the expressions because that was kind of like the big battleground that was going on. At the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that in our, you know, post-enlightenment world that we live in in the West, we can tend to dismiss all supernatural work of God because we have to think through and have a rational explanation of everything and go through our cognitive brain instead of our heart. And we lose track of the the spiritual warfare that is still going on in today, in St. Louis, in our lives, in our families. It's interesting that in parts of the world that maybe haven't followed the enlightenment path of the West, they would say, yes, this is still happening, of course. You know, that is, they experience it. They experience it. So I'm kind of saying two things that I don't want to be contradictory to each other, that there was a very intensification of spiritual warfare in Jesus' ministry and in the early church, and I don't think that has totally stopped. But we may or may not see all of the expressions in every uh, work of God, and we'll get in a little bit to why we can say that with confidence. But look at verse 8. This is the part of this I want you to really highlight. So there was great joy in that city. Philip is in the city sharing the gospel. People are coming to Jesus. Great signs and wonders are happening, and there was great joy. People were happy and excited because someone brought the gospel to them. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we're a little bit embarrassed about the message we have to give to people. Okay, yeah, I want you to know Jesus um, because it'll help you with your life. I think, I'm hoping he will. It's like, no, when we take the message of freedom and salvation to people, it's exciting and it's joyful and it's happy when they can be freed from the bondage that they're in. So look now at verse 9. Start here. I'm going to read a good section of this. If you're in your Bibles, follow along. If not, listen as I read. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. 
he began following Philip around wherever he went, was amazed at the signs and miracles that he performed. You see what's happening? So this culture there, they were following the witchcraft, the teaching of Simon. Philip comes in and begins to share the truth about Jesus Christ, and people get that. The Holy Spirit's drawing them to the truth, and Simon um, pulls back then and kind of looks at what Philip is saying. Now, apparently, Simon had this great reputation, even said he was a great one, the power of God. <clears throat> Obviously, it's a counterfeit, and it was exposed with Philip's teaching, but Simon was drawn to this teaching. At the end of verse 13, it gives us a hint to his real motives. He was drawn to the miracles. He was drawn to the power. He was drawn to the show, but not necessarily to the life transformation. Now, if we pause there for a moment in this chapter, um, the next few verses I'm just going to walk through. So Philip leaves Jerusalem and starting this church in Samaria. The people in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church hear about it and like, wow, we need to check this out some quality control here to make sure everything's going well along with what Jesus' teaching were. So they send um, the apostles, <clears throat> Peter, to investigate this. And it's not unique. There are other times where an apostle would be sent to investigate a new work of the church that was going on. And in verse 15, we pick up, as soon as they arrived, uh, Philip, uh, as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now this, again, we need to pause because this can create a theological dilemma. Philip goes, people come to Christ, the leaders of the New Testament, of the church in Jerusalem come, this looks like it's good, we need to pray that they receive the Holy Spirit because they've only been baptized in Jesus' name. It's like, whoa, stop right there. How do we figure that out? Are there two baptisms now? Um, what's going to happen there? I think it's, it's pretty simple to understand, although there's some complexity around it. The key to unlocking this is to remember that we're reading a story. We're reading a story. The Bible was not written as a textbook for us, where every answer is fully explained on every page. So if you're reading a textbook, it's not going to just give you a little glimmer of what happened in this moment. It's going to explain the truth of that concept. That's not how the Bible is presented to us. The Bible is a narrative of the story of God. And at this point in the narrative of the story of God, there's a transition between the Old Testament time, the ministry of Jesus, and the New Testament period, which we know later in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is, indwells us at the time of our conversion, at the time of our belief and justification. But at this point, there's sort of a transition period. And a good principle in all of our biblical interpretation is that not every reference to aspects of God's work is necessarily meant to be a comprehensive statement on that topic. So what happened here is a narrative, it's descriptive, not prescriptive, that the New Test, the, the, the leaders in Jerusalem wanted to make sure the Holy Spirit was understood and there was baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it seemed like it was something distinguished from coming to faith. But we have to understand that's not a comprehensive statement on everything. We look to especially the writings of the Apostle Paul in his epistles. He does a pretty good job of explaining what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, kids are here with us right now. Kids, can I hear you? Thanks for being here. This is really boring for us adults. Thanks for hanging in here with us. So I appreciate you guys being here with us. Um, I always like it when our kids are here. So the Holy Spirit comes and he 
pours out his power on, these, on this church, and they're, they're now accepted not just who Jesus was, but understanding the power of the Holy Spirit. Later in the New Testament, there's more theological unity of these concepts. But now let's get back to Simon. So Simon, <clears throat> who had converted, sort of, to Christianity, he said that, uh, well, it says in chapter 8, verse 18, when Simon saw the Spirit was given to the apostles when they laid on their hands, he offered them money to buy his power. Let, let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon kind of shows his true colors. He never really was following after Jesus. He just wanted to get this power because it could add it to his magic toolbox and dazzle people and it would be more self-serving. And Peter picks up on this and his response is, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking you could buy God's gift. He warned him to repent. We don't know what happened to Simon. The Bible doesn't tell us. But history, the, the secular history surrounding the early church tells us, tradition tells us that Simon became a heretic and was an enemy of the church. That when he didn't get what he wanted from this power that God was giving to him, he became an enemy of the church. So now we're going to pick up Philip's story in verse 26. And this is a good transition. Philip had come from Jerusalem, started this church that was going really, really well in Samaria. A lot of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit being poured out, a lot of excitement, a lot of great happiness going on in the church. And now I'm going to read, starting at, at uh, verse 26. And this is a long section, so hang with me, but it's important to read this, and then we'll discuss it. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. He started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kandaki, the queen of Ethiopia. A eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He was now returning. He was seated in his carriage and was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit says to Philip, go over and walk beside his carriage. Philip ran over and he heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah, what we would call the Old Testament. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man said, how can I unless someone instructs me? And Philip urged, and he urged Philip to come in the carriage with him. And this is the passage of scripture that he was reading from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice, for who can speak of his descendants? for his life was taken from the earth. So that's the passage of Scripture that he was reading, and he didn't understand that, and Philip was listening to him. Then the eunuch asked Philip, tell me what this guy's talking about. I don't understand this. So beginning with this same Scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Philip shared the hope that we have of Jesus and his kingdom. Then as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and Philip and the eunuch got out of the carriage, and there were probably a lot more people with him. They went down to the water, and he was baptized. And when he came out of the water, the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him again. Meanwhile, Philip—I'm sorry, but the eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. We'll come back to that. That's a good part. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north in the town of Azotus, and he preached the good news there and in every town along the way. So right, out, right off the bat, we see— Philip's ministry resolving what has been years of debate in, in the church. Do we just 
go about sharing our faith because it's what we're all supposed to do, and it's obeying God in every situation. And so if I'm talking to someone, I'm supposed to be witnessing to them, maybe not verbally, but influencing them for Christ. Or is, am I supposed to be waiting for some special revelation from God? Go share Jesus with so-and-so. And, and we've heard people, I'm sure if you've been around the church very long, on both sides of that. Some would, some would discount special direction from God and say, no, what the New Testament says is we're to be sharing our faith all the time. We're to be witnessing all the time. We're to be helping people to know Jesus all the time. Don't wait for that special revelation. Others would say, no, the Holy Spirit wants to give us some special direction, and so we, we should listen to the Holy Spirit, and He will give us specific direction as to where we should go and what we should do. So discounting the general direction of the Holy Spirit. What I love here is we see from Acts chapter 8, we see both. We see how living out the identity of the church results in spreading the good news wherever we go, and at times God might give some special impression, some special direction through the power of His Holy Spirit for specific actions and ministry. It's a both and, not either or. But I think the special direction, the impressions we might say of the Holy Spirit puts on us of reaching out to someone, praying for someone, sharing our faith with someone, going to someone who otherwise we might think, that's weird, why am I thinking I should go talk to that person right now? I haven't talked to him in years. Um, could that be the Holy Spirit? Yes, it could be. But those kind of special impressions that the Holy Spirit gives to us happen under the context or in the context of we are listening and we're always serving people and we're always caring for people and sharing the gospel. So it's significant to note how much Luke devotes now to this salvation of this one person. It goes from the church in Samaria that's growing, and now God is saying, I want you to go to this desert road, and there's a guy out there that I want you to talk to, a foreigner who can take this good news to his own culture and continue the growth of the kingdom of God. Um, I think this is important for us to know and a good strategy for us in our mission outreach work. We're to be sharing the gospel, influencing people, helping people to know Jesus everywhere we go through our actions and our words and our care and the love that we give to people. But there also are times where we can be kind of strategic. And in St. Louis, we need to be doing that right now because God is bringing the world to St. Louis. There are, there are people from all over the globe that are coming to St. Louis that live here in communities, and we can envelop them, and some we have in our own church where we can help them to know Jesus Christ, and then they're going back to their countries, to their people of their nationality, and influencing God like we never could by just sending a missionary from the West to go see them. So Philip uh, is sent to go talk to this, some, this person along this road, uh, and it seems kind of counterintuitive. Philip had started this great church in Samaria, growing, a lot of excitement, and you would think, well, his next, his next position should be a promotion, right? He goes to even a bigger city, even a bigger place to serve more people. But what Philip realized here, and we need to realize, is that living the Christian life, upward mobility equals following God's calling not what our society or even what the church would say upward mobility is. We need to understand what Francis Schaeffer wrote when he wrote, as there are no little people in God's sight, there are no little places. To be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants him, this is how the creature is glorified. I love that. There's no little places. 
If God calls you to care for one person, to invest the next three or four years of your life in coming alongside someone and caring for them and helping them to know the love of Jesus Christ, and that's all from a worldly perspective you're really focused on for the next few years. If that's what God's calling you to, that's the highest calling you can have. There's no need for comparison, no need for pity or pride that we're not doing what someone else wants to, someone else is doing. This is an amazing principle for us. If God calls Philip to go along a desert road and connect to a single guy, that's the highest calling that God could give to Philip. So he runs into this Ethiopian uh, official in the court of Kandaka, Greco-Roman culture. This was a dy- she was a dynac- dynastic kind of queen in, in Ethiopia, a lot of power, a lot of resource. He was the treasurer for this queen, so he had a high political status himself, a lot of power, a lot of authority. He was a worship. He, he was coming from worshiping in Jerusalem, so he must have been a God fearer, and so he wanted to worship and know God, although he's not Jewish. And he's coming back, and he's reading this section from the prophet Isaiah, and he's very confused about what he's reading. In antiquity, people didn't read out loud very much. Um, so I'm sorry, silent reading wasn't practiced. So almost everyone was reading aloud. So he was reading out loud. Philip heard him reading. All along this time, you wonder, it's like, God, are you really sure you want me to go talk to him? Because it actually was a little dangerous to approach someone of that status. And to get close enough to hear what he was reading would be a little weird. God, are you sure you want me to walk up to this carriage and to talk to this guy? And then, and then Philip hears what the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. And if we could pause there, the cool thing about this Holy Spirit who has poured out on the church to empower us, he's also the Holy Spirit that's working out there in the world to draw people to God. You get that? So it wasn't like Philip was coming along and would have to catch this guy up on what God told him to do because at the same time, God's drawing this Ethiopian eunuch to himself. So he's reading this passage. Philip comes along and was reading, uh, was listening to him. And this lesson revolutionizes what we do because what did Philip... Uh, do when he heard him reading. He asked him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? I think that's probably one of the foundational principles of evangelism that we should understand in the church today. Uh, What if we ask more questions instead of declaring truth to people? You know, some of us who came along that, let me help you understand what that means um, and what you need to do as a result. But Philip said, do you understand that? Do you understand? I think a lot of our evangelism would be more effective if we would start with a question. Help me to understand. Where are you at? What do you think that means? The Ethiopian official was wrestling with this passage in Isaiah. Philip joined him in the chariot, started sharing with him. Behind the scenes, God's drawing this Ethiopian into this kingdom that we keep talking about and reading about the suffering servant. um, He asked him what this was about. And then another lesson here, Philip didn't pull out a four spiritual laws or some, you know, canned approach. All right, let me tell you what I want to tell you. It says he started right there with where he was. He started with what this man was reading and with who this man was, and he shared the good news of Jesus Christ with him. Another lesson for outreach and evangelism that should be a part of our story is we need to be students of the people who live across the street. 
We need to be students of the people that we go to school with. We need to be students of the people that we work with. So we know where they're at so that when we share the gospel with them, it's not let me share with you what I want you to hear. Let me start with where you're at and help you to know Jesus Christ. So baptism must have come up because the eunuch said, why can't I be baptized? And we need to pause there because there's another dilemma. I don't know if you're following along in your Bible, but if you're following along in your Bible, you'll notice there's no verse 37 in this chapter. There's no verse 37. Unless you have a King James Bible, or there are a few others that still have verse 37. And verse 37, if you have a King James Bible, reads this. So the eunuch said, can I be baptized? And verse 37 in the King James Bible reads, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And then Philip gives a, or the eunuch gives a profession of faith, and then they go down and be baptized. The problem is most reliable manuscripts don't have that verse. You can see why it would want to be in there, because we want to make sure that everybody understands that he has to believe first, and, and it's put in there. So somehow later that was uh, a scribe inserted that. The most reliable manuscripts don't have that verse, or else you might have it in a margin somewhere. So a little Bible trivia for you next time you look at this chapter. So they got out of the chariot. They probably were a lot of people with the eunuch there. So it was a ministry of a lot of other people. Maybe even other people accepted Christ and were baptized. Verse 39 says, after Philip baptized him, the Lord snatched Philip away. The emphasis here is not on the manner in which Philip left as much as the suddenness. Um, you know, it might be teleportation. It might not be. I mean, it doesn't have to be. The text doesn't, doesn't require that he just disappeared. And, uh, but he left very quickly because God had obviously called him to another assignment. And the Ethiopian went on his way, and I love how it says, he went on his way rejoicing. When we share the good news of God's kingdom, we're giving the world something to be happy about, something to celebrate, something to rejoice over, something to find freedom and hope in, not something that's a new set of rules to follow. That's what Philip was doing here. And then the last thing we learn about Philip in this chapter is in verse 40. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Samaria, or until he came to Caesarea. We can summarize Philip's story with that statement. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way. The story of Philip, if you put a tagline, wherever he was, it's talking about Jesus. Wherever he was, he was helping people to know Jesus. He wasn't different in Jerusalem than he was in Samaria or in Caesarea. Wherever he lands, he's helping people to know this incredible hope that he's found in Jesus Christ. That's the story of Philip. I think that should be our story as well. Each week during this series, we've been hearing from stories from people like you who have been walking a journey similar to the Bible uh, character that we are looking at. I invited Brad Wass to join me and share a bit of his story today. Brad and his wife Patty are members of our church. They've been missionaries in South Africa. Right now, Brad is serving at the Central District Office and the Evangelical Free Church, which is the district we belong in, serving and in, in helping to promote multicultural ministries around our district, which is Missouri and Arkansas and Iowa, a little bit of Nebraska. Unfortunately, Brad is preaching at a church, not unfortunately for us, but fortunately for him, he's preaching at a church in New York today, a Burmese congregation, so he couldn't be here, but we uh, have 
through the wonder of technology, recorded a, or videoed an interview with him. So let's listen to Brad's story right now. Hey, Brad, thanks for agreeing to share your story with us this morning. My pleasure. My pleasure. Before we get into some of the more recent events in your life, could you give us just a little snapshot of your walk with Jesus and how you became a follower of Christ? Sure, John. I appreciate that. Born and raised in Minnesota, hockey player from Minnesota. So with the Blues winning, it's excited to see. I started skating at 16 months in Minnesota. Went away to college at Minnesota State University, and a couple of navigators on my floor shared Christ with me. And uh, was always a good guy, but I, I, I didn't see Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where uh, grace was a gift. And so I was trying to perform to earn my favor. And uh, as the oldest, I was an overachiever, and God did a work of grace in my life. And he, through the Navigator Ministry, helped me to have a DNA of disciple-making, a DNA that basically said, my life is about living out for his glory and for the Great Commission. So... Long and the short of that is what happened was uh, God moved me to St. Louis. <laughs> the navigators asked me to work in a marketplace ministry here in St. Louis. So I moved down to St. Louis and I met my wife through the navigator ministry. As a matter of fact, many of the families here at First Free are also were part of that ministry. And uh, yeah, in the midst of that, I worked in the marketplace for 12 years as an executive at Citibank, uh, living the gospel in the marketplace, in the workplace. Helped start St. Louis Bread Company, had the privilege to work with them, worked as an international consultant. And then in 1997, the Lord called us to the mission field in South Africa. So we had been on the mission field here, but he called us specifically to South Africa. So we left for South Africa in 1997. And uh, 15 years in Africa, the Lord used Africa to teach us what it means to suffer with him. Africa was an incredible privilege for us. We saw multiplication of disciples every three years. And it was an incredible privilege for our family. Patty and I raised our five kids there and it was home for us. So you know we've been studying Acts chapter eight today in the story of Philip. And Philip had what we're calling a forced transition in his life because of the persecution the church was going through in Jerusalem, which led him to Samaria where he was sharing the gospel and helping to start a church with people that he otherwise probably would not have planned to minister to. Can you tell us about a situation in your life where you've had a forced transition that's resulted in you sharing the gospel with people that otherwise you would not have been able to witness to? Philip's uh, life is an incredible story. And uh, what I love about Philip is even after he goes to the Ethiopian and God uses him on an incredible mission to the nations, you don't hear from him for quite some time until Acts 21 where it says that he raised four prophetess daughters and so the significance of that is he spent the small, mostly overlooked, long period of time doing a lot of ministry, a lot of ministry in the home and in the area where he was. But God used him greatly. And so uh, sometimes we don't understand the specifics of how God uses suffering in our lives. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Africa taught us a theology of suffering. So I went to the doctor at the end of May just for a routine checkup. And... Uh, as many mission trips as the Lord has sent us on, by his grace, we've been to 37 countries around the world. But God had a different mission trip for us, John, the end of May. Uh, May 29th, the doctor called and said, your blood tests are showing that your white blood cell count is 644,000. The normal blood test is 12,000. So um, my blood count was huge. And the doctor sent me to the hospital. And in the midst of that, I'd never been to the hospital in my life, except for when I was bored. 
So we're, Patty and I are at Mercy, and the doctors all say, we've never seen a white blood cell count this high. We're sending you down to Barnes. And I tell you, John, for 10 days while we were at Barnes Hospital, room 8808 became a place of worship for us. I had no intention to go to the hospital. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to be up in Iowa running a cup of nations and preaching. And uh, the Lord said, oh, no, I've got another plan for you. He sent us to Barnes, and it, uh, Patty and I had intimate, sweet time of fellowship and prayer with the Lord in a way that I can't even express to you right now. But that was a mission trip that was unplanned, just like Philip. God took us on this mission trip, and every person that came in our room, we had the privilege to say, how can we be praying for you? And the ministry of, of the sweetness of the gospel and the aroma of Christ was evident, and we praise the Lord for that. And in the midst of what God has done, I look at uh, my blood cell count now. What happened was they put me on the number one CLL next generation uh, clinical trial. And it's been one month now, and my white blood cell count has gone from 644 down to 300,000. So it's gone in half. My strength has doubled. I'm back at work. We ran two soccer camps this week, one at Carmen Trails, another one in Real Madrid out in Eureka. So... Uh, the Lord's given us grace. And I want to make sure Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but for your name's sake be glory, because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. The Lord gets the glory for what he's doing. This is a gift from him. We need to continue to pray for Brad as continues to go through his treatments and continues to see progress. One of the things he didn't have in the video, but he gave me permission to share was when he was in the hospital that first time and really facing this diagnosis, which was a very, very scary diagnosis to hear, uh, his daughter's wedding was the next week. And so here he was in the hospital facing this incredible horrible diagnosis physically and a week from then hoping and praying that he would be able to take walk his daughter down the aisle and by God's grace he was he was able to walk his daughter down the aisle and celebrate her wedding uh, just an incredible story of faith but dur even during um, if you're uh, follow Brad and his, his ministry at all it was it was just sort of so Brad was that he would share pictures of this person took me down to x-ray and I shared Jesus with them. And this person was my doctor who came in my room and I asked what I could pray for him. So much of what Philip was doing here, wherever I go, even if it's an unplanned transition, I'm going to be sharing with people about Jesus. A few weeks ago, Adam and I were at the Evangelical Free Church National Conference in Chicago. A few others, Bill and Carol Jones and Rick and Donna Burke from our church were there as well. And I went to a workshop by a guy named Rick Richardson, who is from the Billy Graham Center affiliated with Wheaton College in Chicago. And they recently re released the results of a survey that they did in conjunction with LifeWay Research. They were measuring evangelism in the Protestant church. The book, it's, it's out in book with analysis called You Found Me, and there's a lot of great statistics and research in there. But one of the things that I wanted to share with you that came from this study just recently is that the research shows that for Protestant churches in America, 60% of the churches, 60% of Protestant churches in America are either plateaued or declining. 30% of the churches, Protestant churches in America are growing, but they're growing primarily through transfer that at the expense of the 60 that are declining or plateaued. 
And what they found is only 10% of Protestant churches in America are growing primarily through reaching new people for Jesus Christ. Isn't that sobering? 10% of the Protestant congregations in, in America are growing primarily through reaching people who don't know Jesus. And the same research showed that they surveyed 2,000 unchurched people, and they asked unchurched people, if a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind them talking about it. And what they found is 34% strongly agree, 45% somewhat agree, 13% somewhat disagree, 5% strongly agree. So here's the, here's the thing. We've got a message that the world needs to hear about God's plan and His redemptive plan for this whole world, and almost 80% of the people out there are at least open to us talking about it. Isn't that cool? And yet we sit back and think, boy, should I really risk telling them about Jesus? Should I really risk that when they're ready to hear? We've got a message that would change the world. If you want to know more about that, you can just pick up a copy of You Found Me as the book. It just came out last month by Rick Richardson, and there's a lot of application in there. So here's the application for us as we leave here today from the life of Philip. And this is if you're in grade school, middle school, high school, if you're an adult, wherever, whatever stage of life you're in. This week, God has put people in your life who you can share the love of Jesus Christ with. Maybe it's through an act of service. Maybe it's through a word of encouragement. Maybe it's through praying with them. Maybe it's through inviting them to come to something like next week we're going to start a series on money here at our church, which is pretty popular, or the Mark Gunger Marriage Conference. We don't do that stuff thinking that people are just going to get a postcard and come to our church. We want to help you to do your personal ministry of evangelism. So invite them, eat with them, spend time with them, find a way to make a connection with someone who's far from God. Let me pray for us as we do that this week. God, Philip's life is a real encouragement and challenge for us. How wonderful that he, everywhere he went, was a witness for Jesus Christ. He listened to your Holy Spirit. And our world is in a very similar place. There are people all around us who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And you've put us here in St. Louis to be able to be a witness for you. And throughout all of our ministries, our short-term teams and our outreach ministries, you've also, and our missionaries, you've sent our message around the world so that we can be part of your kingdom growing. So thanks for including us in this, Lord. Help us to take advantage of every opportunity we have this week to be your witness in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.